You know, I thought long and hard about what we would do post our Hebrew study. And we've actually got this great new series we're going to be working in. But after a year of being in this book, it just kind of felt anticlimactic if we just stopped. If we just were like, and here's 13, and we rolled into the final greetings, and then it was over. Because after a year, 39 individual messages later, right, because we've taken some off for Advent and other things over the year, there was so much that we walked through, so much that we learned, so much that we experienced that seems literally almost a lifetime ago that I thought it was a little bit anticlimactic if we didn't go back and revisit some of these really important things, just as a way of reminding us of some of the things that we learned a, a, along the way. And so I, I thought what we'd do is take two weeks and we'd, we'd basically break these two weeks into things that we've learned. And, and I kind of put them in two categories. I put the first category into the things that we've learned about our own relationship with Jesus, right? That's what we're going to be looking at today. The sort of personal aspect of what we've learned from Hebrews about what it means to have and live in a relationship with Christ. And then next week we're going to be talking about what, it, what we've learned about what it means to live in community. Because Hebrews is this sort of great mixture of both a life that we're called to have individually in Christ and how we live that thing out together. And, and as I was thinking about it, and as I kind of was working through it, it's this incredibly daunting task because, as you know, if you've been here at all, we have taken some pretty deep dives over the, this past year, theologically and otherwise, into some, some great spaces, into some important things. And so it was like, seemed a little bit silly to try and break those down into just a few lessons learned. But, but we're going to do it anyway because I do think that a few of the things that we're gonna t- uh, we can pick off the top are really just powerfully important. I don't want us to miss them. So we're, we're not going to be looking at a summation of lessons learned, but just like more highlights of things that are really important that I don't want us to miss before we move on to some other great things and get into Easter and Holy Week and Team Challenge Sunday and all these sort of beautiful things and then launch into a new series and all this, this stuff. And so as I was glancing through this book, I just was reminded of some of the powerful things that we've walked through over these past 39 weeks. And so this morning, we're going to be exploring three of those things as they play out in our own personal relationship with Christ. So three personal things or things that we need to remember that we learn from Hebrews that are valuably important for understanding our own relationship um, with Jesus. And so in order to do that, we kind of got to remember a little bit about where we're coming from, right? We kind of touch on this each week, but these believers, they were just facing a lot of difficulty. They were facing difficulty and opposition from their families. They were facing difficulty and opposition from culture. Because remember, the culture and their families were telling them to give up on Jesus and return to this old and better way of life that was fully Judaism, They wanted them to walk away from Jesus, come back to the Jewish way of life, rejecting Christ and embracing the law, embracing all those pieces that were valuably important in actually being a good Jewish person. And in some cases, they were even telling them like, look, not only do you need to reject Christ, but if you can't do that, then at least keep the law because Jesus himself is really good for nothing. You need to be fully engaged in Judaism in order to be part of this community. And, and again, it doesn't make much sense to us because most of us have never faced pressure like that from family members to reject our faith or walk away from something. But in those days, it was a very real thing. And around the world, it's a very real thing. As believers give their heart and life to, to Christ in other cultures, whether it's a Muslim culture or whether it's in China or in East Asia or someplace like that, they are rejecting large portions of their family and ways of life. We've known this. We've been to those places um, and it's an incredibly hard and difficult thing that was being asked. 
And so these folks were facing this task, and our author, through the entire first part of the book, is basically pleading with these listeners, these believers, to say, listen, hear me. Don't go back. Jesus is actually better. Jesus is actually greater than everything you could hear. He's better than the angels. He's better than the law. He's better than Moses, right? He's better than the, old, the high priest. He is the, the perfect and wonderful high priest. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. The entire first part of the book of Hebrews is devoted to this single idea that Jesus is better. He's better than everything the world says it has to offer and better than everything your family or your culture will say you need to do or you need to be. And so when we look at these lessons, we have to keep that in mind because he's imploring these believers to heed these things. And so what we're going to be doing today is looking in that context of three really important things that we need to understand that we've learned about Hebrews that play into our personal relationship with Jesus. And the first one is right there. And it's Jesus is greater because Jesus is actually God. Now, this is the whole first movement of the book of Hebrews, making an argument that Jesus isn't better because he's a better teacher. Jesus isn't better because he's a, he's a better orator. He isn't better because he's a nicer guy. He's better because he is fully God. And so if you've got your Bible, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be moving around a little bit today. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to use this idea of Jesus being better than Moses as a stepping stone to understand why Jesus is absolutely greater than anything this world says it has to offer you. And that's kind of where our author leads us, is to remind us that Jesus is greater. Not because Jesus has more to offer, but because Jesus himself is actually God. So as we kind of Peel that off. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. And then we're going to dive into these pieces together this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place, to open your word, to revisit some places that we've been over the past year. To take a look at some things that you call us to into our own relationship with Christ and be reminded of the incredibly important and powerful things about the nature and character of Christ. Lord, that Jesus was not just some traveling rabbi that had a lot of great things to say or pushed against culture or called us to love our enemies, that Jesus himself was actually fully God. And therefore, Lord, he is greater and totally sufficient and supreme in all things, and that we are called and invited into this beautiful relationship with him. And so we ask these things, Lord, that as we, we prepare our hearts to open your word, that you would just teach us. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you. Just whisper, Lord, all these things that we've seen over the past year, or maybe you're here for the first time, and just say, God, I want you just to teach my heart. Just something simple. Lord, teach my heart, convict, whatever you need to say. Just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. And take a moment, pray for someone around you, uh, behind you. We pray for, we want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's a stranger. Just pray over them. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them, that he would teach their hearts this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. <clears throat> you are king eternal. You are creator of all things. You are sustainer of all things. 
Lord, in you all things hold together. Teach our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So the entire first portion of this book, as I was mentioning, is devoted to this idea that Jesus is greater. And our author is making a case that he's greater than all things. Everything that the Jewish customs or culture would tell you um, you need, our author makes a claim that Jesus is actually totally sufficient and you don't need those things. That he is the fulfillment of the old covenant. He is the great high priest. He is better than the angels. He is greater than Moses. He is all these things. He is better than the law. Which, of course, translates to exactly how we live in our, even our own culture. We try and push other things into our lives that we think we need. But these things actually translate. Jesus is better. He is totally sufficient. He is all that we need. It is Jesus plus nothing. And the reason for that is not because Jesus is some great teacher or he's got all the answers only. It's because Jesus himself is actually God. And he makes this claim, and we're going to use Moses as a stepping stone this morning to understand this claim. And he makes this claim in chapter 3, verse 2, when he explains to us just why Jesus is actually greater than Moses. So let's take a look at Hebrews 3, 2, and we'll go down through verse 5. He says this, he goes, He, Jesus, was faithful to the one appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. So you got to understand the appeal that was being made to Moses here. So the, uh, these Jewish believers, right, they were facing pressure to return to this great and other way of life that included following wonderful prophets like Moses. And when we're learning that Jesus is greater than Moses, it's not downplaying who Moses is. It's not degrading Moses in any way. What our author is saying is that Moses is fantastic, but Moses is merely a prophet, Moses had a special and unique relationship with God, which is why there is such a movement here to understand the complexity and dynamic of these relationships. Because for most Jewish people, outside of maybe Abraham, Moses was the single greatest prophet because he had this intimate relationship with the Lord. He knew God. God spoke to him. He walked with God. God used Moses to lead the, uh, the Jewish people out of Egypt. He used Moses to literally hand down his law. He had this... In incredibly intentional and beautiful relationship with Moses. And most would say that Moses knew God intimately. And therefore, the argument by the Jewish people would be that Moses is the greatest because Moses knew God, right? And so our author is making this claim saying, I want you to understand why Jesus is even greater than Moses. And he kind of gives this metaphor, right? He says, this is why Jesus is better even than Moses, because Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus had been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house was built by someone, but God is a builder of everything. So what he's saying is that Moses, right, has great honor. But Jesus has greater honor than Moses, because here's what I want you to understand, is that Moses is part of the house of God. 
He's an integral part of the house of God. He knew God. God used him for his great and wonderful purposes. He was part of God's people. But Jesus has greater honor than Moses because Jesus wasn't part of God's people. Jesus wasn't part of the house. Jesus most literally built and created the house and therefore has more value than the house itself. Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus made Moses. And this wouldn't come as a surprise because back in chapter 1, we actually learned that Jesus and the Father are one. That Jesus is the creator and he was there from the beginning as we learned in John chapter 1. Therefore, Jesus himself created the one that was serving in the house. And this would be really important because basically what they're making the statement here, or what our author's making the statement is, is that Jesus and Moses can't be compared. Why? Because Jesus actually is the one that made the house that Moses simply dwells in. He actually just made Moses. Jesus is creator and sustainer of all things. That's why he has greater honor. They're not on par as equal prophets because one serves in the house and one made the house. Right? And so what he's getting at is this, is he's saying you've got to remember that Jesus is greater because Jesus is actually God. And he goes on to say this. He goes on to pull these next two pieces out. He says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, that Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. So he's saying this, Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses was a servant, but Jesus was the son. Now, if you understand anything about how inheritances work, right? The servant doesn't get anything in the master's house. He's simply there to serve the master. And Moses was a servant, and he had great honor, and he was faithful. But nothing belonged to him. But Jesus has this great honor because he, in fact, is the son. And therefore, his responsibility is the inheritance, and his responsibility is to provide for and care for and nurture the house and the people and the servants in it. So he's saying Jesus is greater than Moses because not only did Jesus create Moses, but Jesus is the son and Moses is the servant. Now for us, we get this, right? We look back in the Old Testament and we say, sure, that makes total sense because we have this understanding of Jesus. But to our readers, our those ones that were listening to this sermon that was being preached, right? They were thinking, man, Jesus is so much greater than even the greatest prophet. The greatest thing that the Old Testament has to produce in terms of prophet and servant of God doesn't even hold a candle to who Jesus is. Why? Because Jesus was there from the beginning. Jesus is God. Jesus created Moses. He's the son. Moses is merely a servant. And this is a really high value because the theology here is what do we do with the person of Jesus? As followers of Christ, you and I, do we believe that Jesus Christ is in fact God's son, is in fact God in the flesh, and therefore deserves and demands our heart and our worship? Because Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than all. Why? Because Jesus is in fact God. That's the point he's making in the whole first part of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than the law. He's greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the high priest. And he brings about a great new covenant. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is not some traveling rabbi that's got a bunch of really great things to say. Teaches us to walk against culture to feed those that are hungry, to, uh, to love our enemies with these quippy little sayings. He's not just a teacher. What Arthur's saying is that Jesus is in fact God. And therefore what we do with the person of Jesus Christ 
is of utmost importance. So if there's a single lesson we walk away with from Hebrews, what we need to walk away with is an understanding that Jesus is greater because Jesus is God. He's greater than anything that you think this world might offer you. Whether that is some summation of wealth, whether it's a relationship, whether it's even a marriage, whether it's some kind of fulfillment somewhere, chasing of something, we will always be left unsatisfied. Jesus is greater than all things because Jesus is God. And the beauty of all this is that we are invited into a relationship with Jesus. That's the amazing thing about Christianity, right? Is that when you have Moses, Moses had this relationship with God that most people didn't have or couldn't have. God in his holy, infinite wonder, right, had this intimate relationship with Moses in which Moses had to follow a specific set of rules. And everybody else's sin essentially wouldn't allow them to have that kind of intimate relationship with the Lord. And so therefore God created this old covenant system in which they sacrificed and one person from one family once a year would have the opportunity to interact with holy, majestic, mighty God. And Moses became the mouthpiece for God's voice to the people. That was the accessibility to holy God. But through the person of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, we have this incredible invitation to have this beautiful relationship with Jesus, who is God and is greater than all things, and wants us to know him and experience him. And that's what our author is imploring to these Hebrew believers. He's saying, you don't have to go through a Moses. You don't have to go through an Aaron. You don't have to go through an old covenant. Through Christ, you have access to holy, majestic, mighty God, because Jesus is God. So we're invited in this relationship with him. And the whole first part of this book is designed about knowing that. You are invited into relationship with Christ. And Jesus is greater than all things. Because Jesus is God. But he goes on to say this. We have to be willing in that relationship to nurture it. Right? We've got to be willing to push towards maturity. Because the truth is, if we don't, drifting from our relationship with Christ is a very real thing. And that's the second lesson I want to walk away with. So the first one, Jesus is greater because Jesus is God. The second one is this, drifting from Christ is a very real thing. And he's imploring our hearers and you and I to pay attention. So let's look at two, two chapter one, or chapter two, verse one. This is what he says. We must pay a careful attention. We must pay more careful attention. Therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. So one of the warnings of the book of Hebrews is that we've been invited into this incredible relationship with Jesus through his death and resurrection, but that relationship actually takes us investing into maturity. And if we become very passive in our relationship with Christ, we will drift away. And it's a very real thing. He talks about it multiple times. He says, we must become more careful about what we have heard so that we will not drift away. And he addresses it right in chapter 2. He's saying if you begin to let the outside voices, culture, your parents, your family, all these things that aren't believing, that are telling you to leave Jesus, begin to listen to those. There's a very real part of your heart and your future that will be in danger of drifting. The New Testament talks about it all the time. It talks about the idea that we can drift away from our relationship with Christ. Now the beauty here, and we talked about this at length about a year ago was that once we have been saved, we have been literally had our hearts secured by the Holy Spirit. 
The Bible's very clear that, that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand, that he is the shepherd that holds us, right? That we are saved and our eternal security is safe. But we can still drift in our relationships with him. Think about any of the parables in Luke 15. Lost son, lost coin, lost sheep. Like These are about drifting away from the Lord. Because when we don't nurture that relationship, drift becomes very real. And so he says, we must pay close attention to what we've heard. Now, when I talk about drifting, when I'm talking about this idea that builds into complacency, this idea that our hearts are not totally united and on fire and walking with the Lord and that somehow we've lost passion, we've lost desire, we've lost intimacy. And the thing about drifting is, it's really passive, right? Like no one sets out to say, hey, it's March. I, I think I want to do whatever I can to kind of walk away from my faith. Like I think I want to do something that takes me away from Jesus. It doesn't happen that way. Drifting is just that. It's a slow, steady movement in a direction. And in this case, in a direction away from Christ. And most of us never intend it to happen. When I was, uh, I think I mentioned this a while back, but when I was a kid, one of the things we did, we grew up outside of Austin, one of the things that we did was we'd always go down and float the Comal River. It was a natural big spring-fed river. It was crystal clear. We'd go down there in the summer and literally we'd put in at one place. You get in these tubes, right? You pull your eyes, chest behind you, and you just float 12 miles down the river. And you get out and you have somebody drive you back. And we would do it in the summer all the time. And it was a lazy activity, right? You just get in the river, you sit in a tube, you got the sun on you, you just sort of float the river. You drift. And you wake up in the afternoon after having been out there with all your people and you realize that you're 12 miles away from where you started. You know, drifting from Christ is not all that different, right? It's not super active. It's really a passive. It's sort of a, I'm not actively trying to... Re- cultivate my relationship with Jesus. And the next thing you know, I'm 12 miles away. I wake up and there's sort of mediocrity that's instilled itself in my soul. Like I'm not really on fire. I'm not really walking with the Lord. I'm just kind of here. My prayer life is somewhat stagnant and church has turned into a habit or maybe the pandemic kind of led us to a place of I've fallen out of habit of a lot of things and I'm just not where I want to be with the Lord. And our author's saying, look, this is a very real thing, like drifting from Christ. It's a very real thing, and it's a passive activity. In other words, if you're not nurturing a relationship with Jesus, then you're drifting away. In other words, if we're not kind of actively growing, we are actively dying in our relationship with Christ. And this is a really important thing for us to understand because most of us, right, don't put the time and energy into our relationship with Jesus that we need to make it thrive. We put in enough time and energy to just make it survive. And when we begin to feel the struggles of the world or the pressures of the outside influences, we circle back around, we pray a little more. When when crisis hits, we get real excited. But really, our daily life wouldn't be described as something that's exciting and passion, full of passion for most of us. This is what our author is imploring. He's basically saying the world has a way of just kind of slowly pushing you down the river. Drifting is very, very real, and it is very passive, and there's only one solution. And that one solution is to become active. Active in your faith. And that's going to lead us to this, this last portion that I want us to understand this morning, which is 
Hebrews is written to press us into maturity in Christ. He has written this letter to challenge these believers to ignore the voices of the world, to fight the passivity of drifting away from Christ, and to press into deep and real maturity. So we know that we're called to have this relationship with the Lord because, right, Jesus is greater because Jesus is God. That We've got to actively fight this drifting because it's very real. And the only way to do that is to become active in our faith, right? Become active in our faith and press into maturity. And chapter 5 speaks to this a lot. And this is what he says in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. We have much to say about this. He's talking about falling away or drifting. We have much to say about this, about falling away. But it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you elementary twos of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So saying, look, we've got a lot to say about this idea of drifting or falling away from Christ. But it's really complicated. And it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Now he's giving them a very strong and very real rebuke. He's looking at this group of people. He's probably preaching this sermon or this, reading this letter to and he says, drifting is real. You're falling away from Christ, and I've got a lot to say about it, but it's hard. You know why? Because you are slow to learn. Some of your translations say dull of hearing. But that word that we get, that little phrase that we get, dull of hearing or slow to learn, is actually a better translated as become spiritually lazy. We actually see it used one other time in Hebrews 6.12. It's the only place we see it used in this whole letter. And he says this in 6.12, he says, We do not want you to become lazy. That's that same phrase. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So he says this, The main problem with your drifting is that you've become slow to learn, dull of hearing, or spiritually lazy. That's the reality of what's happening in you. It's not that you're stupid. He's not calling the Hebrews stupid. They're actually quite bright. But what he's saying is their hearts have become so complacent, so tired, so bogged down that they're dull of hearing and they've become spiritually lazy. Now what he says in 6.12 was actually interesting. The opposite of that lazy is they say we have basically come to model the behavior of those that are following Christ. We did not want you to become lazy, but instead imitate those who through faith and patience will inherit what is promised. So in other words, don't be lazy. Model your life after those that are going to be inheriting what God has promised. The opposite of that, of lazy, is the idea of work to be something greater. Right? Push past the complacency. A lot of us in here, myself included, we have become slow to learn. We've become dull of hearing. We've become spiritually lazy. The most we engage in our spiritual lives is probably here on Sunday morning. How much time this week did you spend in prayer outside of the two times that we prayed together this morning? 
How much time did you really spend in your word or with the Lord? Like, if these are convicting thoughts to you, then we've become spiritually lazy. We've become complacent. We've become slow to learn. We've become dull of hearing. And most likely, we are in a full drift from the Lord. But the beautiful thing about all that is that God doesn't just let us drift away. He's in constant pursuit of his people. Like God wants you to become active in your relationship with him. That's why we're called to press into maturity. So he says in verse 11, here's the problem, is that you've become spiritually lazy. You have become hard of hearing. You have become slow to learn. So he said, you want to know what the problem is? Listen to what he says the problem is. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths about God's word all over again. So here's a problem, he says. The problem is, is that you're not new believers. He's looking at this group of people saying, you're not people that are encountering the word of God for the first time. You should be mature. You should actually be teaching people, but instead what you need is you need people to teach you the elementary truths again because you have not exercised or pressed yourself into maturity in Christ. You've simply become complacent by doing the bare minimum spiritually to exist. And he's rebuking them in a strong way. He's saying you become spiritually lazy, lazy and you should be mature in teaching people. But instead, you need to be taught yourself. And this is a terrible place to be. And a lot of us in the church, these are the roles that we've taken, right? That we haven't been believers for one or two days. Like for many of us, you've been a believer for most of your life or for a decade or whatever. Are you still just taking in elementary truths about who God is when you should be a teacher? Like you should be trusting and walking in the mature things of Christ, giving him your full heart, believing wholly and literally wherever he leads, you're in. And you're teaching the people around you about the goodness and greatness of who God is. Or are we still acting as infants, though we should be mature? And this is kind of what he's telling this group of people is like, it's really easy if you want to just drift and exist in the elementary side of your faith, but you weren't created for that. You are created for this deep maturity that knows the heartbeat of God. And this is what he says that looks like, right? So he says, you should be teachers, but instead some of you, you need to be taught again yourself. Listen to the last part of that. <clears throat> he says in 5, let's see, 13, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with a teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So he says this, you can't live on spiritual milk. As an infant, it serves a purpose. It's designed to help you grow and nurture your bones and develop into something that can take solid food. But there's a transition that takes place where you should be taking solid food and that solid food should be nurturing your heart and that should be leading you to mature so that you are training yourselves to dive into maturity in your relationship with Christ, to know the difference between good and evil, the things of who God is, the things that move the heart of God. This is what he says we have access to in Christ. That if we take ourselves off the simple, easy, spiritual things and press into a deeper relationship with Christ, we have the ability to not only know who God is, but walk in depth and know things like good from evil. To teach, to become mature people that lead our families. To make a difference in the lives of people around us because we are proclaiming and living in this incredibly deep and mature relationship with Christ.
And so if I were to ask you, like, what does your relationship with Jesus look like? Would you say it's mature and deep and real? Are you diving into deeper things, mature, spiritual food that is nourishing? Or are you still just chewing on those small things, those spiritual milk, if you will, the elementary pieces, coming to church, singing, leaving, coming back next week, doing the same small things, but wondering why you have a hard time trusting the God of the universe when big things come. What he basically is saying here is that you have to train yourself, train yourself to not live as an infant. Now this is a valuable lesson, right? Because this means that we don't just naturally, right, just naturally become mature. Mature takes training. Spiritual maturity takes training. It takes investment in our spiritual life. It means you've got to be active in your prayer life. You've got to be active in the word. You have to be active in worship. You have to engage your faith. You've got to work to trust the Lord. You've got to tell people about Jesus. You've got to become active as a follower of Christ and not dull to hear, slow to learn, or spiritually lazy. But we need to be men and women that are driven to deep things of God. Not content with living on the surface, but wanting to see the movements of God, the revivals of God, the big moves of God, praying for God to do the miraculous and believing that he will. Not settling for small things and and things that we are just accustomed to, but saying, God, we want to see your great move. I want to know the difference between good and evil. I want to trust you. I want to walk with you. I want to be sent by you. I want to lead my family. I want to know the depths of your soul. God, I want to see your move and your revival, and I want to believe that you will do it. I want to walk in maturity. Why? Because you are greater than all things. Everything this world has to offer, you are greater than that. And you have given us access to that in Jesus Christ. And you have called us to guard our hearts about drifting away from those things, to not become spiritually inactive, dull, hard of hearing, but to press beyond that, to crave more than that, to, not long, to long for deep and real spiritual food that's not just milk of infants. To want to know your heart so deeply, so deeply that I get to know the things that move you, like things like good and evil, things that matter to you, to see you do the miraculous, to be a part of revival, to see your heartbeat. So our author is basically creating this whole scenario in this book to say, you have access to all of that in Jesus. In Judaism, you've always got to go through somebody else. But God has torn the temple veil in two from top to bottom, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and therefore we have access to holy, majestic, mighty God. That means all the wonders of the universe that God has in store for you are literally yours. He is inviting us into relationship with him to know good and evil, to see his heart, to trust him, to watch him lead, to be faithful, to have a depth and maturity in a relationship with Christ. Because Jesus is himself God. This table that we celebrate on, 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 when we do communion is really a picture of that incredible expression. That God through his infinite work and his incredible movement has invited us into relationship with him through Jesus. Because Jesus is greater, because Jesus is in fact God. This table is that picture that Jesus literally laid down his life so that we might have victory over death, the promise of eternal life that begins not when we die but today, and that we have been spiritually nourished into maturity through relationship with Christ. 
not becoming complacent, drifting, but actively knowing the very heartbeat of God. That's what this table looks like. That's the picture that's laid out here, is that you have the opportunity to be in relationship with holy, majestic, mighty God. This is the promise that Jesus has given not only his disciples, but all believers. He's given us this promise in Christ. He's laid it before us, and he's called us to celebrate it together as community. It is literally the gift that he has given the church. It is what unites us as believers from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds and places is the reality that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice and that God, through victory over death, has raised Jesus, giving us new life. And we celebrate this table as this incredible reminder that we are invited into relationship with God. Beautiful relationship with Jesus.